0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGeney at Internet Radio. Today is Thursday, July 6th. This program is being pre-recorded for Friday evening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This week, Melissa and I are in central Louisiana at the home of our good friend, Don Brown we are basically in the middle of nowhere and the internet service is not the greatest so I'm not going to trust it to do to do a live program. I'm pre-recording this one to upload it and play it from our servers at the prescribed time. I'm always hearing complaints of the bickering which goes on between various teachers, factions, or adherents, or so-called pastors, of Christian identity. In my opinion, we have this bickering, because identity Christians themselves are slow to study further once they think they have some truth, so quick to defend what they think is true at any cost, and even with this, they nevertheless tend to compromise with people who wear the same labels, but do not necessarily carry the same beliefs. We create sects because we do not study, and we argue because we tolerate those who refuse to study further and come to terms with greater truths. When I began my studies in Christian identity, through correspondence, through correspondence with friends such as David Gray, and Clifton-Emmeheiser, and dialogues that led to a need for deeper studying, it slowly became evident that the so-called sixth- and eighth-day creation theory, advanced by earlier identity teachers, had some serious flaws, and that even pillars of Christian identity, such as Wesley Swift and Bertrand Camperet, often contradicted themselves in their sermons on eschatology where the non-Adamic races or non-white races came into question. Of course, I didn't realize for some years the amount of arguing that such a realization would bring. Today, as the camp of the saints is overrun by the enemies of God, and as there are more and more tares found amongst the wheat. The issue of race in Scripture is more important than ever before. We must get it right, and the bickering will not cease until identity Christians understand that they can no longer accept the clowns who wish to destroy us by obfuscating the distinctions that are clearly outlined in the word of Yahweh our God. After much study, introspection, correspondence, and debate, whereby we had examined and discussed all of the related biblical issues over a period of several years, it is in my estimation that perhaps as early as 2002, give or take a year, both Clifton Emma Iser and myself became more and more convinced of our current position that Yahweh our God did not create the non-white or non-Adamic races as we know them, as we know them being a key word or a key phrase and that those other races must have originated corruptions spawned in rebellion from Yahweh, or originated as corruptions spawned in rebellion from Yahweh. While Clifton often mentioned or alluded to the possibility, at least as early as 2003, In 2005, in my Broken Cisterns essays, I openly posited the notion that the other so-called races here on Earth are the product of the corruption of the fallen angels. Since then, both Clifton and I have studied the matter rather persistently, and I remain convinced that it is true. Recently, I saw one acquaintance ask the constantly recurring question, where in scripture does it actually say that the non-Adamic races are entirely hybrids and not Yahweh's creation? And I would respond by asking, where in scripture is the creation of the other races listed at all? And where in scripture is the creation of any hybrids listed at all? except for a few documented cases of fornication. Where in Scripture is the creation of any bastards recorded? The Enoch literature, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, describes the corruption of Yahweh's creation by the so-called fallen angels, which resulted in an advent of bastards. The fact that entire nations had become bastardized which is a historical fact, is alluded to in Scripture in certain instances, but is never entirely explained in Scripture because Scripture focuses on the children of Israel alone. Yet we see in Scripture that if it were not for the grace of Yahweh our God and the promises which He made to the patriarchs, even they certainly would have become bastardized. As we have often asserted, in the end there are only two classes of so-called people which are mentioned anywhere. Sons and bastards, sheep and goats, good fish and bad fish, wheat and tares. How did Yahweh make bad fish? Are not the bad fish the same as the tares planted by the devil? The parables of Matthew chapter 13 certainly make that suggestion, as Christ gave us the parable of the wheat and the tares in the same conversation as he did the parable of the net. These parables both teach the same lesson using different allegories. In his second epistle, the Apostle Peter said that non-Israelites amongst us are natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, who speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. This describes a lot of those bickerers who claim to be two sea but everything that Yahweh created was good. Nothing he created was corrupt, and none of it was made simply to be taken and destroyed. Likewise, in his one short epistle, the Apostle Jude called those same entities. Spots in your feasts of charity. Clouds they are without water. Trees whose fruit withers. Without fruit Twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Among other things. Among other things which Jude had called them. After the murder of Abel, Cain was sent away into the land of Nod, which means wandering, the land of wandering. Ostensibly, that is where he found his wife, and joined himself to those wandering stars, the fallen angels of whom Jude had written. In the beginning, there were two trees, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was represented by the serpent, and corresponds to the devil and his angels which we see described in Revelation chapter 12, where the identity of the serpent is revealed. So what are every plant which the Heavenly Father did not plant, which Christ tells us shall be rooted up? How can they not be branches from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That is what they are, corruptions of Yahweh's creation the bad fish in the parable of the net, and they were not created by Yahweh. So in the end, we are told that all of the goat nations, without exception, go into the lake of fire prepared from the beginning for the devil and his angels, in Matthew chapter 25. They all share the same destiny, because they all had the same origin. For that reason, in the end, there will only be one tree standing, the tree of life, which contains the twelve manner of fruits, the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. If, as the Apostle Paul attested, all of the race of Adam were to be made alive in Christ, then why would all of the nations where Israel was scattered ultimately be destroyed, as it is attested in Jeremiah chapter 30 and Jeremiah chapter 46? Why would all of the nations feeding on Yahweh's holy mountain be as though they had not been, as it is attested in Obadiah verses 15 and 16? If they are not the bad fish being cast into fire, if they are not the goat nations facing the same fate as the devil and his angels, if they are not the tares to be gathered and destroyed at the end of the age, then what are they? The truth is that they could be nothing else. They are slated for destruction because they are not a part of Yahweh's original creation. They are indeed every plant which the Heavenly Father did not plant. Any other perception of Scripture inevitably leads to some form of universalism and drives the sheep off the path and into the depths of hell. The law is only for the children of Israel. It was never intended for any other people. King David had gloried that Yahweh gave the law exclusively to Israel in Psalm 147, where he wrote, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He is not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. David was happy. He praised Yahweh, for not showing his statutes and his judgments to any other nation, even other Adamic nations. The fools who cite Genesis chapter 1 and claim that we are to master over these other so-called races and teach them the law are lying. They are deceivers who ignore the many contrary admonitions in Scripture. This concept is called Dominion Theology, and it is a very dangerous lie, since it is always followed by the concept that other races can somehow be Christian, which inevitably leads to egalitarianism, and ultimately to fornication. Having dominion over God's creation is not the same as teaching the other so-called races the law, since the law is only for Israel, as we have just seen in the 147th Psalm. We read in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, For thy people Israel did thou make thine own people for ever, and thou, Yahweh, becamest their God. Likewise, Christ himself had said, that the first of All the commandments is here, O Israel! Yahweh our God is one Lord. Where we see that Yahweh remains the God of Israel and of no other people. Once again, any other perception of scripture inevitably leads to some form of universalism and scatters the sheep. Stop entertaining the clowns who preach otherwise, and only then will the bickering between identity Christians cease. With this, we shall present Clifton Emmeheiser's Special Notice to All Who Deny 2C Line, and this is Part 10. Clifton opens, and he says, I have now completed nine special notices to all the anti-seedliners that we are in a war this is number 10 at the present time the enemy in this war has an agenda of convincing every white to jump in bed with a member of another race and clifton notes that this is mostly women however we would say that today 15 years later or 14 years later There are a lot more white men race mixing, as there used to be. Clifton continues and says that while all this is going on, the anti-seedliners proclaim there isn't an enemy. They may deny that they are making such a claim, but by contradicting the two-seedline truth, they are in essence making such an assertion. Therefore, all the blood of these white victims of Jewish propaganda is on their hands. They are actually aiding and abetting the enemy in their vicious plot to destroy the white Israel race. And Clifton is talking about these anti-seedliners, men such as Ted Wheeland. Clifton says, when you next observe the product of a mixed marriage, thank the anti-seedliners for their part in assisting the enemy in their diabolical plot. Also, those who are in support of the anti-seedliners become accessories after the fact. If you are not sure how your pastor stands on this issue, maybe you should ask him. Write and tell him that you would like to support him, but you can't as long as he doesn't teach to seedline. After all, it's your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren who might race mix as a direct or indirect result of the anti-Sea-liners message. Wake up! We are at war! And of course I understood what Clifton meant when he wrote these words, but I did not realize how much, back in 2002 perhaps, I did not realize how much this had impacted some circles within Christian identity until I left prison at the end of 2008 and began interacting with other identity Christians in social media. If you give legitimacy to the other races as people, once they are perceived as people, you are indeed inviting the danger of Christianizing them and fornicating with them intermarrying with them. This is something that many identity Christians sadly did not get. As E.Y. James once told a Mexican and we have the recording, once told a Mexican that he could be a Christian There is only one body of Christ, and if you accept non-whites as Christians, how do you not imagine them to be part of the body of Christ is beyond me, and once you imagine them to be part of the body of Christ, how can you have a moral basis for refusing to intermarry with them? You cannot. There is no moral basis. That's why kinism, as an ideal, is a failure. Because it contradicts itself. Only a proper view of two seed line, where there are only two parties of so-called people in the world, sheep and goats, sons and bastards, wheat and tares, good fish and bad fish, Only that understanding of Scripture gives us a sound moral foundation and a sound scriptural foundation whereby we may properly preach against race mixing. Once you perceive the other races of people as people, You're sliding down a slippery path to hell. Followers of Ted Whelan still argue with me in social media in defense of non-white races. This I find incredible considering the circumstances which we face today that an acolyte of the rodeo clown would argue with me for hours in defense of niggers having more care for other races than he seems to have ever had for his own. At first I was quite shocked, expecting such behavior from Judeo-Christians, but never from Identity Christians. Since then, I have found the same pattern of behavior amongst many of the followers of Eli James, even from people who listened to both of us, when we did podcasts together, Bill Gloss being one of them. For example, one afternoon relatively recently, I argued for a significant amount of time with a clown named Jan Dupree. He's currently on Facebook. Only later, and he currently slanders me all the time on Facebook, only later I found out that his wife of twenty-something years is a South American squat monster. Jan Dupree was one of those trailblazing white taco benders or white oil drillers or whatever you want to call them, white fornicators. This is so typical of Eli James's followers that they hate me because they have wives or grandchildren of mixed race or They are even mongrels themselves. And identity Christians who accept these people share in their sins, as Paul of Tarsus warns us in the closing verses of Romans chapter 1. When you approve of these people, when you accept these race mixers or these defenders of race mixing or mongrels, you share in their sins you're just as responsible for their sins as they are. That's the law of God. Continuing with Clifton, he says, I really can't see a lot of difference between Ted R. Wheeland and John Hagee, for they both teach that the Jews are God's chosen people. John Hagee said this, let me tell you this, Genesis 12.1 and 12.3 says, I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. If something within you resents the Jewish people, that something is a demon spirit, according to John Hagee, of course. The Jewish people, according to the word of God, are the apple of God's eye. And, of course, that's not true. The nation of Israel is the object of God's affection. And that part is true. It just doesn't really apply to Jews whatsoever. Continuing to quote Hagee, for David said he that keeps Israel, and the phrase keep was a military term, he that defends Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus Christ were all Jews. And of course, John Hagee is only reiterating the lies and the deceit of these people that we know as Jews. These were the words of John Hagee, but Clifton will now show that Ted Wheeland is not much better. As he continues, and he explains that Ted R. Wheeland, in his book Eve, Did She or Didn't She?, on pages 68 and 94, makes parallel statements to Hagee, and quoting Whelan, Clifton writes, Seedliners claim that because the Pharisees and their progenitors were charged with the murders of all the righteous from Abel to Zacharias, they cannot be Israelites, but must instead be Canites of the seed of Satan. The truth is that because the Pharisees and their forefathers were indicted for the murder of the righteous martyrs, they cannot be Canaites, but must instead be Israelite. The seedliners teach that the Pharisees were Canaites of the seedline of Satan, whereas Matthew chapter 3, chapter 27, John chapter 7 and 8, Acts chapters 4 and 7, declared that the Pharisees were Judahites of the seed line of Jacob Israel. And of course, only some of them were. But the re- but their leaders, for the most part, were not of the seed of Jacob Israel. And Ted Whelan is oversimplifying the scriptures to a great degree by insisting that all of the Pharisees and Sadducees were basically of the same race. They're all Israel, or they're all not. And identity Christians do that same thing. They often oversimplify the scriptures, and imagine all those who were opposed to Christ as not being Israelites, when in fact, some of them were. But they were only following along with their leaders. And even the Apostle John I forget exactly where it is in Scripture. This is not part of my notes. This is that this is impromptu discussion. Even the Apostle John had said that some of the Pharisees wanted to believe Christ, but they were afraid that they would be kicked out of the synagogue, and they would have been, because the leaders of the people of Judea were for the most part Sadducees, the political leaders, but many of them were also Pharisees and for the most part the leaders were ostensibly Edomites. They were Herodian appointees. They were not Levitical priests. And think about it. If Whelan's words are true, then we must accept all the Jews as being of Israel. Where the gospel and revelation of Christ, and the epistles of his apostles, deny them this distinction, and that denial is not based on their profession of faith, but rather it is based on their identity as a people. Wheeland might think, that because Christ admitted that the Jews were Abraham's seed, that John chapter 8 proves that the Jews were Abraham's seed. But Willen probably did not imagine that the admittance that the Jews were Abraham's seed, yet the denial that the Jews were children of God, meant that they were the children of Esau, which is exactly what Paul of Tarsus explains in Romans chapter 9. Yes, these Jews could claim to be Abraham's seed. But no, they were not the children of the promise, which is exactly what Paul explains in Romans chapter 9. They were not the children of of the promise. They were the children of Esau. Paul explains it in different terms in Galatians chapter 3. Ted Whelan is full of it. Clifton discusses the consequences of Whelan's treachery. Essentially, what both Hagee and Whelan are doing is putting their stamp of approval on our children marrying a cursed descendant of Cain, a Jew. And of course, if you accept the Jews of Israel, Clifton is just taking the result of their treachery to the next level and discussing the results of it he says that I really fail to see much difference between those two. Again, Wieland will try to imply that Cain was a son of Adam with the same genetics as Abel. If this were true, it would again lead to the approval of a marriage between our children with a Jew. To see if that is correct, let's put it to the acid test. And as much as both Wieland and Hagee are implying that the Jews at the time of Messiah were God's chosen people, then according to Scripture, if we bless the Jews, as Hagee had quoted Genesis chapter 12, we can only be blessed because Genesis 12.3 would apply to the Jews and those who bless them. And Clifton says that if we are not blessed... blessing the Jews, then the Almighty is a liar. Clifton goes on to explain that in 1948, the state of Israeli, he won't call it the state of Israel because it's not, the state of Israeli was supposedly born for fifty three years now meaning as of 2001 the United States has been pumping money into the Israeli state and Clifton makes a quip that it's the Israel lie state the United States has been pumping money into the Israeli state in enormous amounts billions upon billions sums of money that the ordinary person cannot even envision No other nation in all history has pampered a people as the United States has mollycoddled the Israeli state. If the Israelis are God's chosen, and if the Almighty's words are true, referring to Genesis 12.3, the United States should be receiving blessings never before conceived. Let's take a look at what these blessings consist of. We are being blessed, with an ever-increasing abortion rate. Well, praise God for that blessing. We are being blessed with an ever-increasing divorce rate. Isn't that simply a wonderful blessing? Let's praise God for that one, too. We are told that homosexualism and lesbianism are on the increase. What marvelous blessings these are. And, of course, Clifton is being sarcastic. Let's again praise God for those glorious blessings also. Every day, rape is on the upswing. Isn't it just wonderful what God is doing for us? The murder rate is ever on a rise in every part of the country. What an amazing blessing that one is! Let's praise the Almighty for that one too. Drug addiction is going out of control. Isn't that a fabulous and wonderful blessing? Personal debt is going through the ceiling. Oh, please, God. And of course, Clifton puts God in quote marks there because he is being sarcastic. Oh, please, God, bless us some more. Isn't it wonderful that robbery and breaking and enterings are on the increase? Children and adolescents are committing major crimes at a younger and younger age. What a wonderful new trend for the future. And then to Clifton's list, we would add the fact that, with the help of the Jews, we are currently being flooded with niggers. And what a blessing that has turned out to be. Of course, there are many other such blessings that we can list here. Clifton says, if all of these are blessings, I would really hate to see what a curse might look might be like. It would appear we weren't doing better when we weren't blessing the Jews as much. What does it all boil down to? Just this. If the Jews are God's chosen people, as Wheeland and Hage claim, then Yahweh is a liar. For under that prerequisite we should be the most blessed nation on the face of the earth in all of history, for no nation has ever done more for the Jews than we have. Now Ted R. Wheeland might deny he implied or said such a thing, but if you will check his booklet, Eve, did she or didn't she, it's exactly as I quoted him. And Clifton's analysis, analogy is excellent. If Wieland does not contradict himself, then he would have to agree with what Clifton said here. If the Jews were really Israel, then the United States having sent the Jews billions of dollars of aid every year now for nearly 70 years should indeed be the most blessed nation on earth but all we have had is curses and we can expect more curses in the future so if the Jews are the children of Abraham and Jacob then Yahweh cannot be true but if the Jews are devils America is justly punished for its service to devils and Yahweh our God certainly is true, and of course he is. Now concerning the sin in the Garden of Eden, Clifton continues under the subtitle, The Mental Seduction Theory, which is a major flaw of the so-called anti-seedliners. The prime argument used by the anti-seedliners is that Eve was mentally seduced, rather than having been physically seduced. That is ludicrous. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 describe seven definite steps in the process of sin as follows. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The seven steps, the seven definite steps on the path to sin. The seven steps are temptation, which is evil thought, being drawn away, which is a strong imagination or fantasy and then lust, which is a delight in viewing someone or something, and then being enticed, which is a weakening of the will, and then lust conceived, which is yielding, and then the sin itself, which is a sinful act, and then death, which is the result of the actual sin. And Clifton is correct in making those steps following the description offered by the Apostle James that there are no real thought crimes in Scripture you need more than just a thought in order to sin of course there are wicked thoughts and Christ himself said that the thought of lust is as bad as the deed but the thought is not punished the law of God never punishes the thought it only punishes the deed if thoughts were punished we would all be dead before we even had the opportunity to reject and to rein in our thoughts because Adam and Eve were punished for their participation in the events of Genesis 3, proves that there were tangible sins and not merely wicked thoughts. Clifton continues, The gospel according to the anti-seedliners is that an evil thought alone is worthy of death. In other words, one strike and you're out in the anti-seedliners ballgame. They have made up their own new rules for the Bible. It should now be obvious that Holy Scripture doesn't support the anti-seedliners' hypothesis that Eve was seduced only mentally. The next time you have the opportunity to talk with an anti-seedliner, ask him how this seven-step process to sin would apply in the case of Eve. For if Eve didn't go through this seven-stage progression defined by James in chapter 1 of his epistle, then she did not sin. It would appear that either the epistle of James is wrong, or the anti-seedliners are wrong, and I'll put my money on James. And we would indeed challenge the anti-seedliners to find one instance in the laws of Yahweh where a mere thought is punished as a sin without an actual act having been committed. Clifton continues, Not only do the anti-seedliners err concerning the full mental and physical seduction of the Eve, but they accuse the Almighty of unjust punishment for her sin. In order to see this, we will have to read Genesis chapter 3, From verse 14, And Yahweh said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. We can see from this that the serpent, the woman, and then Adam were punished in order that, I'm sorry, in that order for their part in that seduction. Yahweh all, always punishes in like kind. The Bible makes it clear that if a man kills another in premeditated murder, his life is required in return. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yahweh always meets out punishment to fit the crime. In all scripture, one cannot find a single incident where this is not true. Eve's punishment in verse 16 is to bear children in sorrow, and that her desire was to be reserved for her husband, and that she is to yield to her husband's authority. And we would interject that where the text says, thy desire shall be to thy husband, it actually proves that where Eve had desired the allegorical tree, that that tree was actually another man. Returning to Clifton, or another male adult, returning to Clifton, he elaborates. Let's now zero in on the punishment of bearing children in sorrow. The word sorrow means worrisome. The word sorrow as Strong's Hebrew Dictionary defines it, means worrisome. For example, labor or pain, and Jesenius has it for Genesis 3.16 thy pain and thy conception is a hendiatis for the pain of thy conception. A hendiatis which actually is Greek for, for, for one from two, or one through two, meaning that we can get one object out of two descriptions. That's basically what it means. Hendiatis means a figure in which a complex idea is expressed by two words connected by a copulative conjunction to look with the eyes and envy instead of to look with envious eyes in other words the pain of thy conception not thy pain and thy conception thus there are three separate conclusions which can be biblically drawn from Yahweh's pronouncement to Eve that Eve would bear children in pain that the pain would affect the very part of the body where the sin occurred, that her sexual desire would be to her husband. Why did Yahweh even mention it, if she were always true to Adam, or if she had always been true to Adam? It is implied here that Eve's desire had been to someone else and three, that Eve would return and put herself under the authority of her husband, rather than the influence of the serpent. Had Eve been guilty only of a mental crime, as the anti-seedliners so loudly proclaim, it would have been highly unjust for Yahweh to have punished her by causing her to bear children with physical pain. In his booklet, Eve, Did She or Didn't She? by Ted R. Wheeland. He implies that Yahweh is unjust in his punishment, where he says this on page 29. The Bible is always its own best commentary, and it clearly attests to the fact that Eve was mentally deceived, not sexually seduced. And of course, Whelan neglected to consider the entire scripture, when he incorrectly assessed the words of Paul of Tarsus in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 he should have went back to Genesis chapter 3 and considered that word desire that would, should have been his first consideration and why Eve's desire would have to be to her husband as the result of her being deceived by the serpent and her desiring that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes, which is clearly sexual innuendo when we compare it, as we have here in recent weeks, to the text of the contemporarily written Epic of Gilgamesh, where much the same language was used in a clear case of sexual desire. and fulfillment. Clifton continues. Not only that, but Whelan scoffs at Dan Gaiman's work, which we don't entirely agree with, but Dan Gaiman had some things straight and did some things that were quite good. Not only that, but Whelan scoffs at Dan Gaiman's work, The Two Seeds of Genesis 3.15, on page 16 where Gaiman said this, and Clifton Clifton quoting Gaiman, in the divine punishment inflicted upon the woman Eve in Genesis 3.16, why did Almighty God employ the pain of childbirth? What is the purpose of the use of the word conception? How about the use of the word desire? The truth is that God made the punishment to fit the crime. And that is certainly true. Clifton continues and says that there is one thing for sure. Whelan's hypothesis of the account of Genesis 3.16 surely does not fit the crime. If it did, when women bear children, they would suffer severe mental anxiety without any physical pain. And Clifton is once again being rather appropriately sarcastic. Stephen E. Jones in his The Babylonian Connection a work written to repudiate to line. On page 42 says this, We then conclude, Clifton quoting Stephen Jones, We then conclude that when Eve explained to God that the serpent had beguiled her, she meant that he had mentally deceived her. He corrupted the truth of God's word by preaching another Jesus, with the word God in parentheses, evidently belonging to Stephen Jones, another spirit and another gospel, just as Satan's ministers have done through all the ages. And when Eve believed Satan's doctrine, she too was corrupted. Nasha, as used in Genesis 3.13, had nothing to do with physical seduction. And Stephen Jones is basically lying. This is an incredible lie. We see nothing. We see that Eve was enticed to eat the fruit of a tree. We see nothing that could relate that to another Jesus, another gospel. In truth, the race mixing in Genesis chapter three had nothing to do with the gospel. Rather, The sin of Genesis chapter 3 was the ultimate reason for the gospel. It was the ultimate purpose for the gospel. Where Paul says, purpose of the gospel, where Paul says that as in Adam all men die, we learn that race mixing is the sin which leads unto death, spoken of by the apostle John because that was the true sin of Genesis chapter 3 Wheeland and Jones and all the other anti-seedliners deny this most important aspect of Scripture let me explain something else that is not in my notes in Genesis chapter 3 we see Adam and Eve are punished and that they had sinned and were punished for that sin. In the law, Paul says that death reigned from Adam until Moses. And that sin was in the world, even though there was no law. But the sin was not imputed because there was no law. Now, if there is no law, why were Adam and Eve punished? In reality, there was a law. There was one law. And that law was, there was one law that Adam and Eve could break. And that law was kind after kind. That law was eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the law that Adam and Eve broke. And later on in scripture, we see that the sons of heaven Or, as it's in the King James, as it exists in the King James version, the sons of God, the sons of heaven came down and went into the daughters of men and had, in their race mixing, and had created giants. And for that reason, Yahweh God became disgusted with the men upon the earth and punished them by destroying them in a flood, choosing out only Noah and his family to survive, because Noah, being perfect in his generations, had not engaged in that race mixing. So what was the law that these men broke? Why were they punished? There was only one law. There was only one law given up to this time, that same law, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The same law that Adam and Eve broke. Paul of Tarsus' explanation, and the account in Genesis, if we follow it correctly, proves that the sin of Adam and Eve had to be the same sin that was being committed in Genesis chapter 6, and that the sin in Genesis chapter 6 had to be the same sin that had been committed in Genesis chapter 3, because these people were punished, and there was only one law which they could have possibly violated, the law of kind after kind, the commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ted Whelan's right. The Bible is its own best commentary. And when we we examine it properly, when we accept the allegories and idioms and interpret them correctly, and when we admit our sin and the substance of, of that sin, everything falls into place perfectly. If there was no law, Yahweh unjustly punished Adam and Eve. If there was no law, Yahweh unjustly punished those people in Genesis chapter 6. But there was a law. There was only one law, kind after kind, which is what the commandment not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil must have upheld. That commandment upheld Yahweh's first law of kind after kind. The race mixing of Genesis chapter 3 had nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. It was the ultimate reason why we needed the gospel of Christ. It was the ultimate reason why Christ had to come. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world because Yahweh God foresaw all of this in his prescience where Paul says that as in Adam all men die, we learn that a race mixing must be the sin which leads unto death, spoken of by the Apostle John. Clifton continues. <coughs> Excuse me. Clifton continues. Stephen E. Jones also teaches universalism, besides being an anti-seed liner. Those two teachings have done more damage in Israel identity than any I know. In his book, The Babylonian Connection, Stephen e. Jones prefabricated some of his documentation. I will present it here, and you can decide for yourself to what extent he may have misinterpreted or misrepresented things. Wheeland is aware that Jones fabricated some of his documentation because I sent him the information concerning it. Meaning Clifton sent the information to Wheeland when he found that Jones had lied in some of his statements in his book. Clifton says for Jones that item is inexcusable if a man is untruthful, he should be exposed for that untruthfulness. I will offer the following as evidence of such a charge. If a man is deliberately untruthful once, he will be untruthful again. I will now show you where Stephen e. Jones produced totally false information and he used subliminal subliminal suggestion in doing it. We will find it in his book The Babylonian Connection, on page 154, and it reads as follows, and Clifton, quoting Jones, writes, Liberty under God's law is our God-given inheritance. When Protestant reformers of 400 years ago discovered this liberty, they forsook the papal dictatorship. God opened their eyes to the truth of his word. And they rejected the serpent's lies taught by the Catholic Church. Martin Luther wrote, and this is Jones quoting Martin Luther, My hope is built on nothing less than blood, that, I'm sorry, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the serpent's lie concerning immortality. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand and I won't purposely mispronounce immortality in order to make a rhyme. Before we read, I'm sorry, before we read Clifton's assessment of this supposed citation by Jones, the first thing we notice is that the alleged words of Luther really have nothing to do with the Reformation or the papal dictatorship. So Jones cannot even provide a valid context when he contrives a lie. Clifton responds, and he says, When I read this over, the words seemed familiar. They just kept going through my mind. I kept asking myself, Where have I heard them before? Well, I kept going over and over them, and then some familiar music began to come to me. It took me about 10 minutes to begin to recognize the melody that went with the words, but I couldn't think of the name of the song. I proceeded to find some old hymn books and looked to see if I could find a song that matched the words. After finding the songs, the song books, I spent the better part of an hour looking through them. I didn't seem to have much luck in the indexes of the hymnals, so I just leafed through the pages one at a time. While searching, the words that seemed to come to me were I dare not trust the sweetest something but something something Jesus' name finally I found it the name of the song was the solid rock and in some hymn books it is just solid rock but the words the serpent's lie concerning immortality were not there apparently Jones changed these words in order to prove his thesis. Not only that, but I found that Martin Luther never wrote these words. I have an old hymnal entitled The Evangelical Hymnal published by the Board of Education of the Evangelical Church and copyrighted in 1921. For the song Solid Rock on page 150 it has Edward Moat as the author, and William B. Bradbury as the composer. From pages 34 to 36 there is found a list of authors. Reverend Edward Mote is listed on page 35 as the author and he flourished from 1797 until 1874. From pages 37 to 39 are listed composers. William Bradbury is listed on page 37 as the composer, and he flourished from 1816 until 1868, and composed 21 melodies, include 21 melodies in the book anyway, including solid rock. Now you can judge from this evidence for yourself whether or not you think Jones is being honest or not when he says that Martin Luther wrote these words and Jones changed the words to his own use, to boot. Now if Martin Luther wrote these words, then Edward Moat is a plagiarist. In this hymnal, the words used by permission of the Bigelow Main and Company owners are used. This indicates that this company had a copyright against this song, and it could only be used by their permission. And when we visited Clifton Emmeheiser just two weeks ago, we spent five or six days there at his home, I noticed a copy of Stephen Jones's book, The Babylonian Connection, was sitting out in Clifton's living room on an end table. I imagined, being in the midst of this series of presentations, that Clifton probably had something he wanted to show me, but we were so busy during the five-day visit that we never got the opportunity to discuss it, and it will have to wait. However, I did find online the hymn which Clifton mentions here. It is titled differently, but it is the same hymn. It is called My Hope is Built on Nothing Less by Edward Moat, and it is published on the, web, on the internet website lutheranhymnal.com, which provides sheet music of traditional worship songs for the churches. The lyrics for this particular song are exactly as Clifton describes them here, even though the title is different, and the phrase solid rock does appear in the lyrics, even though they chose a different line from the hymnal, from the hymn, in order to make the title. My hope is built on nothing less. We'll have links to that with our notes for this evening's presentation. Now Clifton further discusses Jones's lies concerning this hymn. And he says, let's now take a look at the true words to the stanza of Moat's poem, which was later put to Bradbury's melody. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Not, I dare not trust the serpent's lie concerning immortality. By suggesting that change of words, Jones was using subliminal suggestion in his deceitful tactics to get you to buy his argument the average person would say in his or her mind oh yes i know those words so jones has a good point here subliminal suggestion is a science and is practiced very much by the jews the question here is who might be the jew Behind Jones is doing this <coughs> Excuse me. Notice again, no words about the serpent's lie concerning immortality. They were added by Jones, who misrepresented the true author and thought you would never notice. You can see then that Ted R Wheeland is simply copycatting. The same argument that Stephen E. Jones used to attempt to prove that Eve was only mentally seduced. As if Martin Luther could even change that. Clifton has apparently caught Jones in a blatant lie here. If indeed Jones himself modified the words to a hymn, and attributed the words to Luther in order to suit his own agenda, if Jones had a valid source for the words to the hymn, perhaps he should have supplied a citation that Clifton could have investigated. If there is no citation, then Jones is an apparent liar. In any event, Jones did nothing but lie about Genesis chapter 3. Now Clifton turns his attention to others, and he says in his booklet, The Satanic Sea Line, Its Doctrine and History by Jeffrey A. Weekly copycats. He copycats the same argument, that Eve was seduced mentally on pages 7 and 8. Here are some excerpts. And Clifton, quoting Weekly, writes, The seedliners will insist that it be translated seduced, and they define it as a physical sexual seduction, because the English word seduced can mean that. But can the word deceive mean a sexual seduction? When all these definitions are taken together as synonyms, the conclusion one comes to, if he is seeking to be honest, is that Eve was seduced in the mind, not sexually seduced. So the first point in the satanic seedline doctrine does not agree with the scriptures. Eve was not sexually seduced, but rather she was mentally deceived. And of course weekly missed all of the other arguments which we present, and he is also lying about Genesis chapter 3. Clifton moves on to address still others, and he says, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore, in his Seat of Satan, literal or figurative, states this implying a mental-only seduction of Eve. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, the same scripture writer indicates that Eve was beguiled in her mind not through her sexual parts. And in truth, Eve was beguiled in her mind to surrender her sexual parts, as Paul also said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, as Paul also spoke of the assembly being a chaste virgin, allegorically comparing Eve's seduction to the loss of chast virginity, and Jack Moore conveniently ignored 2 Corinthians eleven two, Clifton continues with others, and he says, Charles Weissman, at a Pete Peters camp retreat, used the same argument as Stephen E. Jones, Ted Whelan, and Jack Moore. The following is an excerpt from an audio cassette tape made at that meeting when Weissman, in an extended presentation, attempted to repudiate the two-seed-line message. And, quoting that tape, and Weissman on it, Clifton writes, In Second Corinthians 11.3, Paul is concerned that the Corinthians would lose their faith and said, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent beguiled Eve, through his subtlety, so your minds be corrupted. So he interprets this verse, Weissman claiming that Paul interprets this verse, to mean something of a mental thing, a mental delusion, mentally delude, to lead astray, deceive, and that is just what the word means. And notice again, the missing comparison to a chaste virgin, a phrase used by Paul in that same passage which by itself entirely discredits the claims of the anti-seedliners in reference to 2 Corinthians 11. Clifton continues, and in regard to all of this, he says, Not only did Weissman, like Wheeland, Weekly, Jones, and more, use the same argument that Eve was only mentally seduced, but on this very same audio cassette tape, Weissman insinuates that the Pharisees and Sadducees at the time of the Messiah were true-blooded Israelites. So Clifton, quoting Charles Weissman once again, states that now we go to Matthew 23. Now this is one of the questions that a guy who wrote me a letter, wrote Weissman a letter, asked about where in verse 35 it states, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Now the statement about this verse by satanic sea line doctrine people is that they say here Christ identified his enemies as being the serpent race and tells the Jews who your, and Clifton acknowledges the error Weissman made here, who he's talking to that they are responsible for all that had been murdered upon the earth, even righteous Abel. Well, Weissman says, Christ here is speaking of a judgment that is to come upon Adamic man, and this judgment includes the murderers recorded in the Old Testament. Jesus did not say to these Jews that they were responsible for Abel's death. They, and Clifton acknowledges again that Weissman made an error and should have said he, They said, all of his, and of course, Weissman should have said there, blood will come upon you. So they are there, meaning the list of, the the list of prophets slain from Abel to Zechariah. So they are going to be judged, all of all of shed blood, innocent blood, is going to become upon this, this people, Clifton repeating some of the words which Weissman must have repeated, and these people were the last of the Israelite order, and that is definitely a lie, and they were the last true representatives of the Adamic race under God's old order, and that is certainly a lie, I don't know where Weissman gets any of this so they were the ones who could be judged and that's a lie so he is not really saying that they were guilty for Abel's death but rather it would come upon them but he does say that they were guilty of killing Zacharias which is recorded in 2 Chronicles twenty four twenty one, and that's also a lie if they were guilty of Zacharias's death According to the words which Christ actually used when he made this explanation, they would have to also be guilty for Abel's death, and it, the Zecharias of Christ's words cannot be the Zecharias of two chronicles twenty four twenty one which Clifton will also explain, but we're still quoting from Weissman here. From the tape which Clifton had in his possession, they were stoned by this people, or this this nation, and in verse thirty one meaning matthew twenty three thirty one Christ says to them, "Wherefore you be witnesses unto yourself that you were the children of them which killed the prophets, so it's quite identifiable here who he's talking to." He's talking to Israelites, and we would dispute that. Just as Stephen said to these same people, Which of the fathers have you not persecuted? Israelites. These are the people that Jesus came to and spoke with and judged. They were not descendants of Cain, but Israelites, as only Israelites could be judged, not mongrels. And we would also object to that. Otherwise, the goats cannot be judged. If mongrels can't be judged by God, then the goats cannot be judged, and the bastards cannot be judged, and the tares cannot be judged. So Charles Weissman does not understand the scripture. Clifton continues, and he says, There is fairly good evidence that the words son of Barachias were never in the original script. A commentary on the Holy Bible edited by the Rev. J.R. Dumelo points this out on page 701 referring to Zacharias the son of Barachias. Dumelo writes, Jesus probably said Zachariah as in St. Luke in Luke's Gospel in chapter 11 without mentioning the father's name but the evangelist or one of the earliest copyists who thought it necessary to distinguish among the 29 Zechariahs of the Old Testament, and understood the canonical prophet to be meant, added the words, son of Barachias," And I would say that it is more likely that the gloss belongs to one of the copyists than to Matthew himself. Clifton continues, The problem is, most of the prophets were after the Zechariah of Two Chronicles twenty four twenty one. Therefore, it is more probable that Zecharias, the father of John the Baptist, is meant in Matthew twenty three thirty five, and he asks us to see the protoevangelion of James in chapter sixteen, and then he continues and says, in such case, Joshua did indeed mean that all the righteous blood from Abel to Zecharias. Also, as I have pointed out in several of my special notices to the anti-seedliners, that Josephus makes it quite clear that outside of a minor few, the majority of Pharisees and Sadducees were not of the tribe of Judah by birth, citing Josephus' Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, Chapter 8. Therefore, Weissman's argument against 2 seedline line doctrine is totally spurious. This also shows that it is highly likely that Wieland was parroting Weissman when he mistakenly but unequivocally claimed the Pharisees and Sadducees were true descendants of Jacob Israel, on pages 68 and 94 of his booklet Eve, Did She or Didn't She? And while it is possible that Zechariah the prophet was the man intended by Christ, As it is he who is described, where it says in Matthew twenty-three thirty-five, Zechariah the son of Barachias, we nevertheless find it unlikely. Rather, we prefer to follow Luke, which does not have the words "son of Barachias," and we interpret the passage to be a reference to Zacharias the father of John the Baptist whose death is described in the apocryphal literature in the manner in which it was described by Christ. However, in any event, Weissman was wrong because it is certainly not a reference to the Zechariah of 2 Chronicles chapter 24, who did live before most of the biblical prophets, and whose father was named Jehoiada, rather than Barachias. So Weissman did not really know the scripture very well. He should have never, in reference to Zechariah the son of Barachias, he should have never referred to 2 Chronicles chapter 24. And I believe in past episodes, in past presentations here, I discussed that at length and actually found the commentary which first stated that which Weissman must have been copying from and which also had it wrong, but I don't remember that name the name of that commentary now. The biggest mistake that Weissman makes in that passage, considering that passage, is to consider the condemnation of Christ as a condemnation against the Adamic race. The murder of Abel can by no means be blamed upon the children of Seth, who was not even born when Abel was murdered. Weissman's interpretation is absolutely contrary to the justice of Yahweh and his word concerning crime and punishment. The sins of the fathers may fall on the children, but not the sins of half-brothers. And Cain was driven away before the scripture informs us of the birth of Seth only another race. The race of Cain, which is also described in the scripture, can justly be held accountable for the blood of Abel, and they can indeed be traced through scripture all the way down to New Testament times, even if Weissman and Wieland remain ignorant. Clifton continues, I should probably pronounce that Wieland. Clifton continues. There are many who don't realize that Pete Peters is not two seed line, and of course now Pete Peters is deceased. He clear as is Charles Weissman. He clearly showed his position on the subject when he introduced Charles Weissman at his camp retreat when Weissman made his presentation against the two seed line doctrine. This is what Peters said. Charles Weissman was definitely one of the intellectuals of the people, and he is a man that has been a very diligent scholar from what I can ascertain. He has some very fine writings, and I've been blessed immensely from some of the things he has brought. Shall we give Charles Weissman a hand? And that's how Pete Peter's introduced Charles Weissman, and we would not agree with much of that being applauded clifton says charles weissman concluded his totally erroneous presentation against the two c line doctrine by saying the following and pete peter sat right there and he never challenged a single word that charles weissman had to say and clifton quoting charles weissman from that same audio cassette tape says so why does this two c line doctrine exist today Well, it exists because we have a tendency within ourselves to not want to have evil and problems to come from within. We want them to come from without. And therefore, if you tell somebody about a falsehood, about problems coming from without, some other people from groups will accept it, from other groups will accept it. But if it's not from within, it's less likely to be accepted And this is all a totally false premise. It's a totally false argument. Weissman continues and says, Same problem when you try to tell people about the corruption and evil in American government. They just can't accept it. But if you tell them lies about some foreign country, or about some Saddam Hussein, by which we can date this tape, they will accept that because now the corruption is from without. It's hard for us to accept that problems come from within ourselves, our family, our government, our nation, our race. It's more appealing and acceptable if they are from without. The Cain satanic seed line has problems and evil coming from without, and that's not true at all. An outside source, that being Satan, who were the enemies of Israel in the Bible, most of them were offshoots of the Adamic race and Clifton protests that statement with the interjection, bulminor, or bullshit. The Midianites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Amalekites, even a lot of the Canaanites. Remember, Esau was your brother, and so was Cain. And Clifton says, bulminor again. And so was Canaan. And so were those who stoned the prophets and who killed Christ. And it's evident here that Weissman is absolutely oblivious to the long line of bastards found in the Old Testament. He continues and says, The truth is that all the evil associated with the line I'm sorry, with the Jew today, is from within. That is, it comes from within the people of the Adamic race. Those who were rejected by God, cursed by God, cast out, etc. That is what, in part, constitutes the Jew today. Sort of the refuse of the Adamic race. God, throughout history, has been pruning His vine, separating out from the original Adamic stock, people like Cain, and Canaan and Esau and others. In conclusion, the satanic seedline doctrine is not scriptural. It's not logical. It is a false doctrine that I think we need to set aside and move on to the truth of what God has actually done in the earth. And of course, Clifton ends the quotation with another interjection, which says, "More, bull manure. and Clifton did not elaborate, but only denies the veracity of Weissman's statements with interjections. While Israelites do indeed sin, the apostles themselves attributed the deception of the people to outsiders. Where the apostle Jude spoke of certain men crept in unawares who were before, of old, ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. He could not have been speaking of Israelites, for Israelites cannot be described as having crept in unawares. Paul of Tarsus spoke of this same distinction likewise, where in Acts chapter 20, and I'm sorry if I'm still typing. He spoke of the same distinction likewise, where in Acts chapter 20, he first warned of grievous wolves, who would enter in among you, not sparing the flock, and then contrasted them to Israelites leading the flock astray, where he said that also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them so we see there are sheep who can sin and we see that there are sheep i'm sorry that there are wolves in sheep's clothing which sneak in unawares the wolves cannot have the same origin as the sheep or they would not be wolves in both jude and peter in his second epistle both Jude and Peter, in chapter 2 of his second epistle, considered these outsiders to have been condemned from the beginning without any possibility for repentance or acceptance, and both apostles related them to the fallen angels. That relation is not merely a spiritual one, and in the Bible as well as in our history books, the physical relation can indeed be illustrated. In turn, the revelation of Jesus Christ connects these fallen angels to the serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Eve had desired when she was beguiled by the serpent. Therefore, two seed line is the only truthful way to consider the scripture as the Apostles themselves had considered Scripture. And with that we will close. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and please stop entertaining clowns. We will be here tomorrow evening with another pre-recorded program and our good and dear old friend, David Burton a name that you probably have not yet heard. Praise Yahweh and good night.